People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dora and I are really excited today to have Elaine Carney Gibson on Health Gig. She's the author of the new book, Your Family Revealed, A Guide to Decoding the Patterns, Stories, and Belief Systems in Your Family. This is going to be a fascinating discussion because we're going to talk about our families too. Elaine lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and she sees individuals, couples, and families, and she specializes in relationship therapy. She is the director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Training Institute of the Link Counseling Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Elaine, to HealthGig. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Trisha and I have really been looking forward to this conversation. And as I mentioned, this work that you've done is of great interest to both of us. So mm-hmm. we want to dive into your new book, Your Family Revealed, a guide to decoding the pattern, stories, and belief systems in your family, because there's so much to talk about there. But we like to begin by asking a little bit about you. Tell us about your background, where you grew up, and your journey to becoming a psychotherapist. Well, I grew up in a small town in central Indiana uh, with a mother and a brother and a sister. I was the oldest. I love the time frame I grew up. You know, we were free to ride our bicycles and and be outside and do those things that I think are really valuable and that really inspired imagination. Mm. And I think that's part to me of what I'm working with my clients is helping them in the sense of getting in touch with who they are is encouraging them to be more in touch with their imagination. And so I think I was very lucky that I got to grow up in that kind of setting where it was a much different time. Then I went on to study education and was particularly interested in early childhood development, which has really Mm -hmm. served me very well in moving into the field of psychology. And when I moved into the field of psychology, the thing called family systems was just coming to the forefront. And uh, so I was very lucky and that I got to actually be with most of the people that wrote the textbooks and did the trains back in the early, late 60s, early 70s, which was thrilling to me. It was never a dull moment. I got very excited about it. I'm still excited about it a lot (laughs) after all these years. Yes. And so that it just made sense to me to think about whoever we are, wherever we are, and whether I'm working with an individual, a couple, or a family to think about it in terms of the systems that we live in now and the systems that we've lived in. I love what you said is how your mentor, Richard Felder, said, well, isn't all therapy family therapy? (laughs) Yes. And I love that. And I remember his saying that he was a psychiatrist and had been at Emory, along with some other very well-known people who were psychiatrists, who left Emory University and started their own practice, the Atlanta Psychiatric Center. And I was very lucky to be mentored by this group. Very exciting time. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with family systems therapy or theory, can you explain exactly what it is? The family systems theory kind of views human suffering as a result of relational patterns as much or more than pathology or deficits. And this was a real move away from the medical model. 
the belief is that we get a chance to, if we have some awareness and understanding, the patterns we've gotten into in terms of relating, in terms of thinking, in terms of how we are in the world, if we can take a look at that and understand it, then it gives us more power to make new choices. Mm-hmm. That's really what I, I really intended with my book. It's not a book to say, okay, this was wrong. This happened wrong. This is bad. These people did this. These people did that. Gee, this is why I am how I am. But how do you want to be in the world? How do you want to feel? How do you want to think? Now that you know these dynamics or these patterns or these beliefs or values that no longer work for you, what do you want to do to move away and create something new, to transform your life into something that is more positive and feels congruent with your true self? I do see, as I may have said earlier, psychology as soul work, which the word psychology comes from the Greek word of psyche. And and that's really what I believe is my goal is to help people know more about themselves and move forward in their life, honoring their true selves. In your book, you invite people to journey the labyrinth of their life. Can you talk about that? The circling in, the circling out, when we go back to like our earliest Well, I'll let you walk through sort of a session, (laughs) which I think would be fun, you know, so people understand what we're talking about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Lane, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, there's a lot to unpack. (laughs) I love the imagery and I love the labyrinth. I always have. We have one on the grounds center where I work and I encourage clients to walk it and I go out and walk it periodically because I find it to be very meditative to go in and go out. But I used it in my book to talk about we're starting off in our lives in the center of this labyrinth with the birth mother and then with that family or an adopted family. We learn about who we are. I do see, as I may have said earlier, psychology as soul work, which the word psychology comes from the Greek word of psyche. And and that's really what I believe is my goal is to help people, you know, know more about themselves and move forward in their life, honoring their true selves. We learn about how we're supposed to relate and be in the world. And as we grow and kind of journey outward, we go to school, we're out playing, hopefully, and we're doing other things outside of our families. And then we're going maybe off into the world, into the world of work, the world of furthering our education, and then off into some kind of jobs that we're doing that may not be anywhere located near where we grew up. Some people like to travel to learn more, but we're reading, we're growing, we're learning. And so we're traveling out from that center. I think that it can be useful to periodically think about those times, circumstances that we learned and the stories that we learned about who we are and our families are. And to think about those in terms of, okay, that's happened then, I've moved away from that. What do I want to bring with me that's useful? What do I want to think about in terms of changing? Mm -hmm. The only way I'm going to know that is by taking a look at it. I don't want to get stuck back there. Right. I'm just visiting. And it's like, oh, I have that memory. 
I know, you know, you've had this experience. You'll have something and you'll think of something that happened 20 years ago. You hadn't thought about it in 20 years and you realize it did impact you. And perhaps something in you shifted at that point and you want to just know more about it to understand yourself better. So I really do like the idea of the labyrinth and moving out, but periodically allowing yourself to say, oh yeah, that story I learned way back when, I don't want that story to be the story of my life now. And like an example of a story of that would be, it's never anybody's fault. It's not like that, right? I mean, everybody's on their journey, our parents, our family, everybody. So it's how you experience it. Is that right? Yes and no. I do believe that there have been times where people have been victimized. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they are a victim, that they have a choice whether they're going to live out of that victim script or they're going to heal from that experience, grow from that experience, move on with their lives, but not deny it. But it is the meaning we give it. If you have siblings and you know that you all have this experience together, each person may have given it a different meaning. Right, right. So it's the meaning, not only the experience or the story, but the meaning each of us assign it. Right. Is that meaning working for us? Maybe there's a different meaning. So it's being open to other perspectives of looking at things. I think so. It's being open. I think that's so important and flexible. If we become rigid or our belief and we're not open to seeing different perspectives. Sometimes we change the story. We make a new narrative. Other times the story stays the same. We change the meaning we give to it. Because one thing that I know we've talked about on our podcast is like, well, for example, me, like I want a new story. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. So I got to go back and kind of think about things a little differently is what you're saying, right? In my relationships with my loved ones, my family, my siblings, that kind of thing. I think so. And I think we understand we look at some of those patterns, how they got created. Some of them are transgenerational. Maybe you could talk a little bit about transgenerational. I think that's so fascinating. Yeah, I found it fascinating. Uh, Murray Bowen was kind of one of the early people who talked about transgenerational transmission process, meaning that we take on our beliefs, our values, the stories, and give the meaning to those that our parents give them. I give an example in my book, and I like this example a lot, a gentleman he was lived out of fear. He was always waiting for the next bad thing to happen. Or oh. back in the day, we said the other shoe to drop. I don't know if that's something people say anymore. <laughs> waiting for the other shoe to drop. He right. was living with that every day. And so he had high anxiety. But when we went back and looked at it, his family moved here under very hard circumstances from another country at a time that was very difficult. And they really were victims. And they did live in that thing of, of what's going to happen next. That got transmitted through the generations. And he was living with that, that you live in fear of waiting for the next awful thing to happen. So when we could identify it and talk about what was truly going on in his life at this time, that he was able then to put that story in perspective. Yes, this happened. Yes, it was horrible. My family suffered, uh -huh. and it certainly impacted all of us. But here uh -huh. I am today, and I can choose not to live with that belief that something bad is just around the corner or that the other shoe is going to drop. 
Yeah. He really transformed that belief. So in your book, you talk about the different ways families function. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what are the different styles, what you've discovered? I think that that was written years ago, not maybe even before systems theory was talking about how families, you know, you could be a democratic family and that everyone in the family kind of gets to have a voice, but there's a hierarchy. So that there are people in charge who make the decisions and are responsible. There can be the family where they're so rigid and autocratic that one person or several people make all the rules. They don't listen to anyone else. No one else has a voice. It's the kind of family that when I was growing up, I would remember, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. Right. Then we had uh, back, you know, I think the 60s, particularly or 70s, we called it the laissez-faire family. There really didn't seem to be hardly anybody in charge. <laughs> it sounded like a lovely idea, but what I saw was a lot of insecurities developing because children, I think it's very important that they can feel that they're in a secure, safe environment. When I taught parenting classes, I often asked the people taking the courses what they wanted most for their children. And I'd ask them to think about it or write it down. And about 80% of the class would raise their hand. They wanted their children to be happy. And I would do the wrong answer. (laughs) What's really important and that I hope that you will want for your children is that you can help create for them a secure, safe environment. Because when they feel that, then they can have those moments or instances I even think about of being happy. But we're also safe to have the other feelings, our sadness, our anger. We need Mm. how to behave appropriately around that, but that it's okay to have it. So that security is important. So when I think of family structure or functioning, there is an executive branch or executive functioning subsystem of a family, because out of that, I think creates security and safety. Hmm. If again, those people who are in that role are sane and healthy I don't have parents anymore, but I have siblings and we live near each other in the summer and we have one boss, which is so, it does make you feel safer and secure. So does your theory, you know, extend to extended family, not just the nuclear family, say? Oh, absolutely. And when I see an individual or couple or family, I want to take a history and that includes the extended family. I'd like to go back three generations. I want to know the siblings of those great grandparents or grandparents. And I want to know medical history. I want to know their mental health history. And then I want to know any stories that have come out about that. And why is that? Because you're looking for the patterns that get passed down. I am. I'm looking for patterns. Oftentimes addiction, particularly I think alcoholism, that we see that coming in a family that there's some idea that there's a predisposition that may be true for depression. It has to do also with how people relate with boundaries. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. Okay, let's talk about boundaries. Let's talk about boundaries. (laughs) Yes, because before our (laughs) podcast today, I called Tricia and I was trying to make a case for myself to put up some boundaries today (laughs) um, with someone in my family. And so it's very timely for for me and Trisha too, we all Always. constantly talk about boundaries. <laughs> well, boundaries with adult children are yeah. really interesting. It's just a different kind of relationship that I think everybody's learning to be in. 
Talk to us. <laughs> boundaries and realizing your boundaries and honoring your boundaries and knowing how the system works. They're healthy boundaries. They're unhealthy boundaries. A healthy boundary is when you know your thoughts and feelings. You can identify those as separate from someone else. You allow yourself to have them. And hopefully, and more and more so with women, you know, giving ourselves permission to have voice around that. And learning to say no, because some people would like for us just to be available to them at all times. And they want us to do whatever they want us to do. And they keep asking us for that. And it's like, okay, so we set a boundary. And that's the answer is no, that's not going to work for me today, or that's not going to work for me. So yes, in siblings, it's true with everybody. But I want to look at siblings. I want to look at how if I hear a story, and oftentimes with couples, one of the things I hear is that one partner may be very upset with the other one because they feel they have too close a relationship mm -hmm. with someone in the family. And they feel like that relationship becomes more primary than the couple relationship. And it's something I hear over and over again. And it's like, okay, so how can you stay connected with these people you love in your extended family and set a limit and boundary lovingly? Sometimes it may not feel that way to the other person, but again, it's what is your intent and your intent is to honor yourself and to safeguard your primary relationship. That then requires setting some boundaries, being very clear about that and following through with it. So often I see people, they'll set a boundary, but they don't keep it. And then it doesn't work. So you have to be brave enough. I, I think it takes bravery, brave enough to set the boundary and stick with the boundary. If we're pleasers, it's hard. It's sometimes in our nature. I mean, we've learned that. We maybe learned that as our role to be a pleaser. Uh -huh. But I think sometimes it's just in our nature. We really want. It's not we feel like we have to. We really want to. So how do we honor that and honor? Wait a minute. But this doesn't work for me. This isn't feeling right. I always like that idea of, and this was from Dr. Felder. You mentioned earlier, he would talk about, we make sacrifices. We always have to make sacrifices for people we care about, but we choose not to be sacrificial. There's a difference mm. from making a sacrifice and being sacrificial. I've always really found that to be so important to think about for me. And, and for me, it becomes a visceral feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like sacrificial, like the sacrificial lamb. Is that what you mean? Well, I am giving something of myself away yeah. that is not in my best interest or is detrimental. Right. So it just falls in all different categories. So going to visit someone that I want to go see, and I make plans to do that, and I'm going because it feels like, okay, I want to have this relationship. I want to support them and what they're going through. I want to be there. I really want to do this. Well, okay. I may be making sacrifices to do that with other things in my life, but I want to go do it. But there may be a point in there for timing, my own health. So to do it in that moment would become sacrificial. It's the same act. I feel dread. I'm feeling anxious. So when I feel that, it's like, okay, I've moved into going into being sacrificial rather than willing to make the sacrifice. I need to pull back and take a look. How can I honor my relationship with this person and be there in the way I want to be and take care of myself. 
Yes. And it sounds like, okay, we could work on that. But something that comes up for me, and I just wonder about this and what you would say about this is, does boundaries require a people pleaser in a way? Because the problem sometimes is, is somebody's really working on their boundaries, right? So it's all about them and their boundaries and no, no, no. But then the other person in the relationship has to give a lot because you see what I mean? Like, does that make any sense? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where you have a dialogue. And that hopefully the person who's the one that's saying, gee, okay, I'm going to honor your boundaries, but I also want you to show me respect (laughs) and how can we work this out? How can we do it in a way that will feel fair and we'll feel like we're each, we're getting what we need. But the person that says, look, I'm setting more boundaries. I'm saying no more. I'm not going to be as available. I need to go do this by myself. It takes a lot of dialogue and understand Mm. and to feel heard and understood because if the person saying okay but gee i would like a little of your time so that person needs to feel heard and understood so i can set a boundary and be caring i know it's hard for you to understand i'd like to go away this weekend by myself Mm -hmm. i know it's hard for you to understand that is not a need that you particularly have or want but it feels important to me And I know it feels strange to you. And I know it's not something you're familiar with. So what can we do to help you feel more secure or better or know that you're cared about or I care about you? So it's still going to be hard, but maybe we can do it in a way that will make it a little less painful. So communication is the number one factor determining the kind of relationship you have with your, well, with others and with the world. Those are examples of positive communication. What are some more examples of positive and what are things we shouldn't do? Yeah, like destructive. Yeah. Well, I do kind of go through that in my book. I list positive communication stuff, Mm -hmm. things that don't particularly work well. I think communication is paramount in relationships. But I also believe that if each person isn't, this is an old word, but self-actualized, in the sense of having differentiated from their families of origin in a way that allows them to be who they are, know Mm -hmm. what they think and feel, that it makes it much more difficult to be in communication in a healthy way. So I think that it is each person's kind of responsibility to do their own growth and their own healing, that their partner's not magically going to fix this. And that their partner is also an individual who has their own wants and needs. And there's freedom in the relationship to express that without someone being wrong or bad. That the whole idea of making requests, which I think is so important in relationships, can only work if the other person has right. right of refusal. If the other person doesn't get to have a right of refusal, the peacemaker thing comes in. They have to do it because somebody requested it. It doesn't work well. So there has to be the right to make a request and the right for refusal. And the fear of intimacy is often so great. We all have that longing to be known. And we're all often terrified of being known. To be willing to be vulnerable, to be intimate with someone. I think that's at the core because then that's going to determine a lot about the communication. So there's positive ways to communicate. There's certainly negative ways of communicating. 
Tell us about, and Dora, I know this is something we talk about, like when you meet a family that's together a lot, and I guess it would be the extended family, what happens then? And then conversely, we don't want people to not be together. Dora and I are very fortunate to be close to our families of origin. So Dora's got her four brothers, and then I have my two sisters and my brother. One of my brothers passed away. But we feel really, as a unit, and as Dora said, both her parents have passed, my father's passed, and my mother is has Alzheimer's, and so she's 92. But without my siblings going through that, uh, it would be really hard. And so I depend on them a lot. I think, Dora, you depend on your siblings a lot. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, Dora and I both have four adult children. And oh, gosh, and weirdly, she has two little granddaughters. I have one granddaughter and then another one coming in the way in the wings. (laughs) So we're we love our family. All to say we love our family. We love our family of origin and we love our children and the families that they're creating. So this is important to us, the whole family patterns, right, Doro? Yeah, like how much togetherness is too much, but there should be some distance or what's the healthy balance? Also too, like allowing our adult children to kind of have their lives. And then how are we impeding them (laughs) out of love, you know, and all that? Well, I do think it's balance. There's not a right or wrong, a good or bad. It's, you know, different people have different ways of doing it. I love the idea of there being extended family and doing things together. And I even have a chapter in my book. It's called How Much Togetherness. That's the name of it. And it's the balance between individuality and togetherness in a family. I think that is something that we're working on with balance. If there's a problem, then it's like, okay, what's happening here with boundaries? What's happening with someone who's maybe needing me more right now than I feel like I have the time, energy, or whatever to give to them? But yeah, I just think it's really word balance is what's important. And what that's right to you, that it feels positive as you each describe it. It's an interesting role because especially with our boys who are now marrying these beautiful women, their wives who are wonderful, our relationships definitely, it's different. You know, girls, there's a different kind of dynamic going on. But with the boys, there's a different way of everything changing, you know? That's what happens. We have the relationship that they feel comfortable in having and that we can make requests <laughs> and we can understand that they can have a right to refuse. They can request and that we have a right to refuse. And that's all done with love. Mm-hmm. No one's bad or wrong. Right. You just work it out. I know, Dora, you were really excited to talk to Elaine about birth order. Yes, I'm so interested <laughs> in birth order. And I know that there are variables that it's not just, okay, you're the youngest and you're this way. You're the oldest right. and you're this way. But talk about that. I think it's really interesting. I'm the youngest in my family. And Trisha, you are. The second youngest. Yeah, second youngest. A youngest girl. And then I have a younger brother. Two older sisters and then me and then a younger brother. I almost (laughs) didn't include it in my book. I think I may even said that. I can't remember. But there are so many exceptions. Yeah. This kind of came out of Alfred Adler's work. And he was a contemporary of Freud. And he really saw some patterns in birth order. And I almost didn't include it because I see so many exceptions. But then I think, you know, it's kind of interesting. I have three sons. And when my youngest son read some of the stuff about what is commonly true for younger children, he said, yeah, that feels right. That talks about my experience. May not be everybody's experience in that position. 
but it's just kind of fun to know and mm-hmm. see where you might be different in sense of how it's talked about Alfred Adler's point of view that the oldest child is the one that you know feels like they need to go out in the world and carry on or prove something or whatever that may be oftentimes there's a perfectionism mm-hmm. depending on where you are in the middle that there are times where a middle child can get lost that often builds a good, strong sense of self. Oh, that's mm. right. That's, that's right. true. <laughs> and, and can almost move away, differentiate from the family of origin by having more kind of independence and autonomy. And the younger child, depending on how much younger, it seems in my experience, as to whether they kind of become the mascot of the family <laughs> and are treated in that special way, or sometimes depending again on the size of the family and maybe the distance between the children may get left out. Mm-hmm. Where Or it could be kind of both, maybe. With, it could be both. It could yeah. be both. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling it was both for me, but <laughs> it's so interesting. It is interesting. And I think it's kind of fun to think about. And it's really fun. Yeah. I think what you said at the beginning was so interesting that this really is soul work. And when we think about it like that, it is fascinating. I mean, this is our one life, right? This is it, at least in this form and how we are, right? So how fun to find something like what your work is to really explore in a loving way, all the patterns from generations behind us. It's just a really neat way to, I think, spend time appreciating our life and our souls, you know? Yeah. And it's hard work. It can be very difficult work too. Yes. It can be difficult work, but we hope rewarding. I also think at the beginning when you said about the family stories and how they impact us. Yeah. It's really important. Can you talk about that and then talk about the shame and secrets and what is the difference between a secret and privacy, which is really important, I think. Privacy. That we're all entitled to privacy. To me, it's a secret when it impacts someone else and truly has impact. You know, there's degrees if we think of a continuum. Something may impact somebody if I have a continuum zero to 10, 10 being high. Okay, it has an impact of a two or a one. It's really something that impacts them. It becomes a secret. It moves beyond privacy. You know, I've worked with folks where one of them is having an affair. They're keeping that a secret. Well, that very clearly is impacting the relationship. That's a secret. It's not about privacy at that point. But we all have, we're entitled to privacy, that we have our own thoughts. We have our own feelings. We have times when that just needs to be ours. Mm-hmm. We're not wanting to talk about it. We're not wanting to share it. It's not because we don't care about the other person. It just is ours. And I always honor the privacy of my boys. I mean, I fortunately didn't believe any of them was doing anything they shouldn't be doing. And (laughs) something might be in the room I needed to find out if otherwise I would have, but I always felt like, okay, I'm not going to be one of those parents that goes through their desk because they weren't doing anything that would indicate to me I needed to do that. Right. And I would have, if I felt there was a need to do it, they got to have their privacy. As a child, I kept a diary. I kept a diary from the time I was probably eight or nine years old. That was important to me to have my diary and to lock my diary. Mm. Now, likely my sister figured out a way to read it, but right. I was just going to say sisters can figure that out. <laughs> it was important for me to be able to put down my thoughts or feelings. And yeah. I had that. I 
people keep journals. Sometimes you want to share that, sometimes you don't, but you're entitled to privacy. Mm -hmm. I think where secrets come in in relating to stories is that we get a story that we're operating out of. And if we find out later that story carries in it a secret, it becomes very powerful. And often if we find that out, be freeing. I, I do give an example in my book. It was a very powerful one. It was actually a colleague of mine who was working with a man who was anxious and depressed and never quite knew why. He was very successful in what he was doing in his life. He had a good relationship. He never knew why he felt all this, but something wasn't right. And the story in his life was, you know, growing up with his mother, uh, whom he loved very much, having aunts and uncles and grandparents and having a nice extended family experience. And when one of the aunts died, he found out then that she was actually his birth mother. Oh, yeah. The sister had the baby young and her sister raised the baby as her child. When he learned that, the pieces fell together for him in a way that you can't understand because there's no words. But the pieces fell together for him in a way that he could finally breathe mm-hmm. and felt like he knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And so that family secret did have a huge impact on his needing to know something that really did help him. There was a new story, and he created the new story. The new story was a very helpful story, and move forward with that. So that is, I think, a good example of where a secret kind of moves in with a family story. Can I say something about diaries, though? So, <laughs> so my mom kept a diary her whole life, and they're not going to release her diary till 2050 because she wanted to make sure all her children were dead before her secrets came out. So where is the diary now? Like, who's the keeper of the diary? It's down, I don't know, it's down at the <laughs> library or something. But it just made me think when you said about the diaries, you know, think we're all kind of glad we don't have yeah, to read right. the diary. So that'll be interesting to her because 2050, gosh, Elaine, right? Like the family patterns, they'll have the diary to go back to <laughs> that, that generation, you know? <laughs> we'll never know what's in it, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> that's probably in my mom's case that's good so whoever is around then to look at that to say oh so this is a little bit different story or we yeah right see it from a different perspective and again there's not any words it's not like it makes sense almost at an intellectual level it may yeah. but it makes sense at some feeling level yeah mm-hmm. right but right so lane you are in atlanta is that where you live it is and you practice there so can people come and see you and work with you? <laughs> I'm still practicing. I practice not as much as I was at one time. or still doing a lot of supervision for therapists who know more about using systems theory in their work. Like I said, as long as it's exciting to me and I can do it, I want to. If it ever stops feeling that way, then it's time for me to stop. Oh, but it'll never stop, right? Because it's just so fascinating, I think. <laughs> can we end the podcast with this poem? That you have in the back of the book. It's written by S.H. Payer, but you've included it, which I think is so lovely. And it's live each day to the fullest. Mm. Live each day to the fullest. Get the most from each hour, each day, and each age of your life. Then you could look forward with confidence and back without regrets. 
Be yourself, but be your best self. Dare to be different and to follow your own star. And don't be afraid to be happy. Enjoy what is beautiful. Love with all your heart and soul. Believe that those you love love you. Forget what you have done for your friends and remember what they have done for you. Disregard what the world owes you and concentrate on what you owe the world. When you are faced with a decision, make that decision as wisely as possible, then forget it. The moment of absolute certainty never arrives. Yes, I love the last line. The moment of absolute certainty never arrives. So often we're waiting for that. It's not there. And so we move forward with what we know, with what we feel, with what we believe to be in our best interest. I've always loved that poem. Thank you for reading it. It's meant a lot to me. As I said, I, a man handed that to me on a, gave me a motorcycle ride. When we got, got off the bike, I said, thank you. And he handed me the poem and I carried it with me for years. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today on Health Gig. It was an incredible conversation, and we're just so thrilled to get to know you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I enjoyed it so much. So thank you again for having me. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.